ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 12 through chapter 4, verse 9. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through chapter 4, verse 9. I, too, am quite thankful for our legacy choir. appreciate y'all so much leading us. You brought back memories. My grandmother taught me how to long for heaven by singing that song soon and very soon. But what we would do is anything that we were doing we didn't want to do, we would make that into a lyric. So every time I ate at her house, we had to clean up, and we would say things like, soon and very soon, no more dirty dishes there, we're going to see the king. You know how that goes. No more sweeping the kitchen there. We're going to see the king. So we sang that all throughout, and in, in, in some way it made me long for heaven. I appreciate that by every, every stretch. Try it, by the way. It makes cleaning up a lot more fun. If you're singing that while you're doing it, and anything you don't want to do, just make it into a line, into soon and very soon we're going to see the king. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, the apostle Paul's continuing, and in this section of Philippians. It's a larger section, so we're going to look at it together. I'm going to attempt to speak to us on Christian maturity. Paul is urging here the Philippians on to Christian maturity, and as we look to this, we'll have 10 things about Christian maturity. Now, before you gasp or anything, don't worry about it. You're going to get this first. Um, the second hour may have like five things. It just depends on how long it takes. But, but we're going to look at this and just walk through this passage. And I think we can do this together about Christian maturity. Paul is writing, having told the Philippians about their confidence, where it should be in the Lord. Whatever I had, he tells his testimony, I count as loss for the sake of Christ, only that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In verse 12, not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining, toward, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ." Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved." I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose name are in the, Lamb, are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. 
The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and the encouragement it brings to our hearts. We thank you, Father, that you have saved us and redeemed us and made us your own. And I pray this morning, Father, that everybody in this room knows that. I pray that they, can, they know that, Father. They know that Christ Jesus is Lord and Savior and they have trusted him for their life and repented of their sins and given their hearts and their lives to Christ. Father, and I pray that as we have done that, I, I pray that we seek after Christ in everything, that we move on to maturity always, God, that we seek to grow in grace and knowledge of you for your name and for your glory. And now, Father, as your spirit works through this passage in our hearts, may you, may you draw us closer to you. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our youngest son, Patton, he's my, my little buddy. He told me to say that, by the way. He said, Dad, tell him everybody you're my buddy. He's got his first loose tooth. And so this started the conversation this week, several conversations. He's at that age, at six, where conversations can go on for a long time and not really get anywhere. We started talking about growing older and what does it mean to get older and these things start happening as you get older. And so we discussed some of those major milestones in life like how he got his first tooth and we remember when that happened and he cried a lot or, or how he started to learn to talk at a very early age and hadn't stopped since. How you learn how to ride a bike and get your balance and these are all growth markers in our life, you know, that you do and so on and so forth. And so we talked about how you grow up and things change and things happen. And there's certain things that we must see really as we, we do this. There's certain things we must see in the life of our children that help us determine their health. These things are natural and healthy, these changes that come. And many of those we talk about often are these physical growth markers that we have. But we also recognize there's, there's growth in the way we learn and our knowledge and thinking of academics, if you will. Starting with the basics in reading, writing, and arithmetic. Starting with those basics and then adding on to those. And in school, that's what you do. You add on to those basics and you hit those markers and you take those tests to see if you're learning at the rate you need to learn building on them. And as parents, not only do we watch those physical markers and those, those learning markers as they seek to grow, but we also want to watch other things as well. We also want to help them not only grow in those ways, but to grow in what we would call maturity levels also. Now, maturity levels are a lot harder to, to mark. They're a lot harder to, to recognize. In fact, even in this room, we've got different levels of maturity, though some of you may be the same age. I'm not pointing any fingers. 
But we want to see our children grow in these ways, taking on responsibility, becoming self-starters, and just clean their room without asking them, right? We want to see these things happen in their life, this growth. Just as much as we see the physical growth, we want to see these things happen is where they begin to grow in maturity as well. Maturity levels in most ways are determined by centrally, I think, how we relate to other people. How we relate to other people. One Christian psychologist says it this way, that there are four markers or four levels of maturity. One is the me-only stage, and we recognize the me-only stage, and we, we see that with our children when they're not willing to share and only concerned about their self and their self-interest and who they are. But then they grow out of that a little bit, and they get to the me-plus-others stage, and, and they, they still put themselves first, but in some ways they'll help others as long as it kind of benefits them in and, and, and doing that. And so you see them growing. And then the third stage is the others plus me stage where they start to put others first. They don't always do it exactly the best way and they still have them, their own self in the middle, but others plus me stage. And then finally, the others only stage. I think this is at the heart of what the Apostle Paul is desiring for the Philippian Christians. He's wanting them to grow in this maturity. He's wanting them to move on in this relationship and understanding of what life is. He's trying his best to help them understand that here is what life is all about. Here's what the Christian life is for us. So we want to grow in these things and we want to push on toward it to grow and be mature followers of Christ. This fits, by the way, with the, the nature of Christianity itself, how it is described in scriptures. We all know that when we come to faith in Christ and we first repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, that he saves us and redeems us, and the scriptures call that being born again. In John chapter 3, that's exactly what Jesus says. You must be born again. And salvation is that idea that we're born again. We're born anew. And so you get that understanding that when you become a Christian, you're an infant in the faith, if you will. You're born again in the faith. And we become children of God. And from that point on, we begin to grow. And in the Christian life, there are those markers that, that Paul lays out. In fact, as he's dealing with the Corinthians... He's dealing with the Corinthian church. He recognizes that, that they should be farther along in their growth process. And he says, you, you need to be eating the meat, but I had to feed you with milk because you were not able to bear it anymore. Just like the child starts to eat solid food in their growth and their, their maturity levels, Paul says to the Corinthians, you need to be eating the meat of God's word, but I've got to feed you milk. You need to be growing here. Or take the author of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, when he writes in chapter 5, verse 11, he says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, he says. 
So the Apostle Paul and the author of Hebrews, and they're all trying to say as believers, we're not only born again into the faith, but then we begin to grow as we grow in knowledge. And as we grow, we we see those markers to where we leave the, the milk of the word and we go to the meat just as a child would leave milk to go to solid food as well. Paul writes to the Colossians, He says, it's Christ Jesus we proclaim and nobody else. In fact, he puts it this way. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul's desire is that we not only learn and trust in Jesus for our salvation, but that we would grow in him on to maturity. On to maturity. And here, as we get to the book of Philippians, and as we've read through it, it seems that our levels of maturity we discuss fit Paul's desires. He wants them to live worthy of the gospel. He wants them to count others more significant than themselves. Think of others first, just as Jesus did when he went to the cross. And so now he's writing in chapter 3 saying, look at what you have in Christ. Now move on to maturity. Consider others greater. And that is the encouragement that this section brings. It brings us to press on to Christian maturity. Now, quickly, as I said, just a few ways walking through this that Paul urges us or what Christian maturity looks like or how we should understand it. First, Christian maturity means that we humble ourselves by resting in Christ. Paul says, Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This seems obvious because this is where Christianity begins. Christianity begins by us placing our trust in Jesus Christ. Christianity begins by us trusting in him for salvation, to forgive us of our sins and to give us life. Christianity begins right here. In fact, the very gospel is about this itself. The very gospel says that God, the the perfect heavenly father, holy and righteous, has made everything. He has set the rules and he has set the standards. But man, instead of following after him, has disobeyed him and turned away from him and rebelled against God's rules and standards. But God in his mercy has sent his son to redeem us and save us out of our rebellion and our sin by giving his own life on our behalf and being raised from the dead. So now we must believe and trust in Jesus if we're going to make it out of this world alive. That's the gospel. And so the gospel in itself is that we would give up our own efforts to find salvation. We would give up our own striving to earn God's favor and that we would turn to Jesus and trust in him completely and alone. That's what the gospel says. You see, maturity sometimes teaches us that, but immaturity would would teach us that we maybe can do this on our own. We maybe can figure this out. We, we We know better than God, but that's what Paul says is that maturity begins with us trusting in Christ alone. Paul may have had every reason to claim in some ways that he has arrived. I mean, it's the Apostle Paul. He's writing from prison. And look at his attitude even here. When people are preaching against him, maybe he could say, y'all, look to me, I have arrived. Especially after this previous paragraph as he's turned everything uh, uh, for loss as rubbish compared to what Christ is. But he says in verse 12, not that I have arrived. I am not perfect at all. A Christian who is mature would recognize that you're not perfect. And in that 
We are in desperate need of someone to save us. There will never be a time this side of heaven that we will arrive at perfection. There'll never be a time this side of heaven that we'll be where we need to be. Therefore, we will always need Jesus. We will always need him in our life. We will always have to depend on him. We'll always have to trust him. But let me say this a little farther. Go a little further in this understanding. There'll never be a time on the other side, after we have tasted death and been raised again to new life in heaven, there'll never be a time over there that we don't need Jesus. We'll need him forever, always. In fact, as one theologian says, and I may have said this before because I love this illustration. He says, if Jesus, for some reason in eternity, when all has been said and done and all of his people are around the throne, when Jesus, let's just say, for example, he has to step outside of heaven just for a moment, every single one of us saints who are dependent upon him must go with him outside because the only reason we're there is on his behalf. And his credit. And so we are desperate for him. So Christian maturity recognizes that I can't save myself. I don't have enough power in my own. I must rest in Christ. And he has came after me to make us his own. And let me say this as well. I've learned in my life, probably you have too if you're a child of God, that Jesus just gets sweeter every day we know him. Every single day we know him. Not because he's changed. He doesn't get sweeter because he's changed. He gets sweeter because every day we go through this life, we recognize how desperate we need him and how he's always there, right? Every day we go through this life, we recognize how desperate we are for Christ and he's never forsaken us. And every day we go through, sometimes it just gets harder. Life gets more difficult. I had a guy, I may, I may have done this, I've been preaching too long, and if you're an old preacher, you say the same illustrations all the time. You know what I'm talking about, but you'll get over it. You can handle it. <laughs> had a guy, we were singing just a few more weary days and then, right? And he stopped the song. That's the problem. Stop, 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 stop. We're up there singing. I'm thinking, what in the world's going on? He stops the song. That's the problem with everybody today. Just a few more wearies. We as Christians should be happy we should be happy. So we should be singing just a few more happy days and then. Don't, that's not the joke. Just a few more happy days and then I'll fly away. I started thinking, no. I'm not, I'm not too old, but I'm tired. I'm weary, right? I'm weary from fighting my sin on the right. I'm weary from fighting my sin on the left. I'm weary from the world and all of the tragedy and heartbreak and pain we see around it. And there is just a few more of those weary days. And then, right, then I'll be with Christ Jesus forever. And during those weary days is when we recognize that Jesus gets sweeter and sweeter and sweeter for us who trust in him and know him. That's what a mature believer understands. He just keeps getting better. Christian maturity also Christian maturity also calls us to press on and never quit. Christian maturity calls us to press on and never quit, never quit. Yes, we rest in Jesus, but we also run the race. We rest in him, but we press on. In fact, Paul tells us twice in here, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Paul says he presses on. Paul uses words like this all throughout his, his, his writings, his letters. He says, I strive, I toil, I labor, I fight for the goodness of the gospel. He never quits. He's going after the crown that does not perish, and he's going to get it. The child of God continues to work until the moment the Lord God calls him home. Let me get you to understand we may move on from one job. We may quit doing one thing, but we never retire from following after Jesus. We never retire from pursuing after him. And just because we may not be doing the same thing we've always done, it does not mean that we should not be pressing on, toiling and laboring for the gospel, continuing until the day he calls us to himself. The Christian who is in maturity recognizes that there's no quitting in this life. No matter how hard it may get, Jesus is with us. No matter how difficult it may be, Jesus is there. And no matter what may come, these trials and difficulties are only slight and momentary compared to the glory that awaits us. So we press on. And the Christian who is looking toward Paul says, who is looking toward maturity is one who presses on. In fact, he says, let those of us who are mature in verse 15 think this way. And if you think otherwise, I pray to God he reveals to you something different. If you think anything else, you need to know that this is the way we must go. We press on. We rest in Jesus and we continue to run and we continue to go. We continue to move forward. It's like telling the football team it's time and doing the, the pep talk before the game, right? But in this case, we know the victory is already ours. So the pep talk, the pep talk still comes. It's time. Go out there and fight because we know we've already won. So we don't sit back and relax and just wait on the victory. We go and we grab it and we take it. We've already won this thing. Now go get it. Now go after it. Christian maturity leads us to press on and never quit. Christian maturity embraces the cross of Jesus Christ and all that it means. Surely the cross is the center point of Christianity. We know that. It's the, it's the very heart of what happens for us, the cross and the resurrection together. It's the center point. It's where the Son of God gave his life for his people. And anyone who would call upon his name, what he did on the cross has secured our salvation and our hope. All of that has happened. But not only do we look to the cross and embrace it and embrace it and hold fast to it, we embrace all that it means, right? We're thankful for the cross that God saved us through his Son on the cross, but we also take it in and Jesus says if you want to follow me you must take up your cross and come after me you must die to yourself and so Paul says here brothers join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us for many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ for the Apostle Paul, there's only two kinds of people. Those who embrace the cross as your only hope and your only joy and what happened in God there through his son, Jesus Christ, are those who walk in enemies of the cross. Paul says, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Paul reminds us in Galatians that he has been crucified with Christ and he no longer lives, but Christ lives within him. And so for us, we must embrace the cross, embrace the fact that Jesus died for us and that we must live sacrificially before others. 
Paul says some are enemies of the cross. They live by their appetites. Their God is their belly. Their end is destruction. Paul sets it up to saying that this doesn't mean that they, their, their God is food. What it means is they just consume whatever they desire, whatever they want, whatever their appetite is looking for. They simply live off their appetites. And Paul says we must embrace the cross, which is the opposite. Those who live off of their appetites, only their desires and try to fulfill whatever they are. That's the opposite of what happens at the cross. At the cross, Jesus gives himself. He sacrifices himself and gives himself up, not for his own glory, but for the glory of God before others. And so ultimately, ultimately here he says that we must embrace what this means. Do not look to yourselves, but we live our lives of sacrifice, knowing that our satisfaction is not found in this world and nothing this world can give. Remember our verse from last week in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, Paul says. They embrace the cross as our hope and our standard for how we live before others. Christian maturity realizes that this world is not our home. He says, look at those who are enemies of the cross, end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory in, in their shame, with mindset on earthly things, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian who is mature realizes this world is not our home. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. As Christians, by all means, we surely have every reason for patriotism. By all means. In fact, the freedoms that we love and we appreciate, we're exercising even now the freedom of speech, the freedom to assemble, right? We have these freedoms in our country that have been granted to us. So by all means, we are thankful that we can meet here without any coercion, without any force, without any oppression, for that's not the case in the rest of the world. So we praise God for the freedoms we have here. Amen? At the same time, we must recognize that our citizenship, first and foremost, is not in this place. That first and foremost, our citizenship is in heaven. And just as sure as we have those freedoms now, we ought to know that those freedoms can be taken away from us at any time, and it does not change our heavenly status. They can be taken at any moment. They can be taken from us at any moment in any way. So what the scriptures depict and what Paul gives the image of is that we are ambassadors living in a foreign land. Y'all know how the embassy works. It is a piece of sovereign land in a different country for another country, right? And so it is here, Taylor's First Baptist Church. This is a piece of sovereign land for the sovereign King, Lord God Almighty, and we are ambassadors for his sake in this world, in this country. Our citizenship is there, and we're ambassadors for him, so we represent our king to this lost and dying world, the one who can save them and redeem them, and we're telling everybody, y'all come join us. Y'all come join us for the glory of our Savior. Because we look, as he says, to the one who will send the Savior for us, Christ Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So all kings and all rulers of this world will ultimately have to bow, bend a knee, and confess with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord and King. 
And so we look for the day that he transforms this lowly body to that glorious body. I was in my prime for about three months. I was 19. Ever since then, it's been downhill, right? You're looking for that day that the Savior comes for us and Christian maturity recognizes that it will never happen in this world and in this life. Christian maturity stands firm in the truth of God's word. He says, Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm in the Lord. Or back in verse 16 of chapter 3, Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Christian maturity means that we stand firm in God's word. We hold true to God's word. Paul continues to encourage them to stay faithful. Hold on to God's truth. There is no other truth. There is no other option. Stay faithful to what he has said. Hold fast to what he has given us. If you leave the truth of God, if you become unanchored from that truth, then you will wander and you will sway on this world and wherever it may take you. But you anchor yourself to that truth. You hold fast to that truth. You stay right there. And a Christian who is mature recognizes that they can't let go of this. The moment they let go of this is the moment they have been lost in this world. The world will constantly attack God's truth. And it does. They want, to, they want us to believe that it is not modern enough. It's too antiquated. They want us to believe it's not relevant for this day and this time. They want us to believe that it's not able to stand the test of time, that, that God's word has, has clearly, it's passed on. It's not able anymore. But here we are. Here we are today, gathered together around it. And still there are believers all over the world gathered together around it. And we still believe, at least I do and I hope you do with me, that every word in this has been inspired by our God. That everything about it is true. That everything is good for us, faithful to follow. And though the world has put it under attack, what Paul says is, if you let go of it, you've lost it all. Hold fast to God's word. And by the way, Christian, hear me, even in a country that claims Christian heritage as it, as it is, when we hold fast to God's word, we're going to look more and more weird to the world outside. Just consider this week in our country when men who claim to be women can race with women and we call it good. This is nonsense for the believer. And a Christian who's mature recognizes that's an attack against the very truth of God's word. But don't you get sucked into believing that you've got to let go of God's truth and God's word to fit in. If you want to fit into this world, you'll never fit into heaven, Paul says. The Christian who's mature knows where the truth is and where the truth lies, and they hold fast. They hold fast there. The mature Christian doesn't compromise what he or she knows to be true, no matter what the pressure is from the world. Christian maturity puts all things in proper perspective. I love this in chapter 4. These two ladies are fighting over something. Two ladies are fighting over something, and uh, probably something really sophisticated, like who's in charge of the party planning committee in Sunday school or something like that. Where are we going to meet? What are we going to do? Yodia and Sintiki, they're fighting, and Paul is saying, please get them to agree. Please quit them, get them to quit fighting. Come on, he says. 
These two have labored side by side for me in the gospel. They're two sisters in the church. They've labored. For all we know, these two sisters were there by the river with Lydia that first day. He popped up in, in, in Philippi. For all we know, they've trusted him from the beginning. And now they're fighting over silly things, Paul says. I encourage you to get them to quit. Get them to put everything in proper perspective. Don't fight over nonsense and silliness. For the gospel is at stake, Paul says. The gospel's at stake. In fact, he goes on and he says, encourage them because their names are in the book of life. That means they got to spend eternity together. They're all saved by the same Savior. They're all following after the same Lord. So the fact that they could disagree over nonsense and silliness just changes the whole thing for Paul. So he says Christian maturity puts everything in perspective. What is our eternal perspective? What really matters? We want to be doing what matters today, what will matter 10,000 years from now. That's what we want. That's what we care about. Not silly arguments. Put it in perspective, Paul says. Get them to understand they're both saved, children of God, and they need to work together for the gospel. Christian maturity rejoices always. This is not the first time we've seen this in verse 4. In fact, Paul says, again, I will say, rejoice. Rejoices in the Lord always, repeating himself, because this, I believe, is the central point, central call of his, of his message to the Philippians. But notice the phrase after this. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. I love that phrase. The Lord is at hand. No matter how bad things get, the Lord is at hand. No matter how difficult your life may be, the Lord is near. No matter where you may be at, all of your circumstances placed together, don't forget the Lord is close to you. He is at hand, and he will bring you home. This becomes the phrase, I believe, that carries this entire section of text. Christian maturity means that we rejoice always because the Lord is at hand. Christian maturity means that we're not anxious about anything because the Lord is at hand. We know that the Lord taught us to not worry, right? Don't worry about how the birds will be fed. I've taken care of that. How much more will I take care of you? Don't worry about how the flowers will be clothed. I've done that. How much more will I take care of you? Don't worry about these things. Be anxious, as he says here, for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Remember, the Lord is at hand. He's there. He's caring for you. And belief is the opposite of worry. Knowing that the Lord is with you, knowing that he's there means, means that you don't need to worry. You don't need to worry. Christian maturity is not anxious about anything. Christian maturity prays in thanksgiving because the Lord is at hand. Praise in thanksgiving. Be anxious for, do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I remember that passage. I preached from that verse one time in my life. It was when Allison's sister at 28 years old died suddenly. And then for some reason, they asked me to preach the funeral. And I remember the Lord saying, here's the verse. It puts everything in perspective, right? Here is your sister-in-law at 28, passed away and gone. Quit fighting about little things. Don't, don't fight about what's nonsense. This is what matters, right? This is what's true. 
Trust in the Lord, even in the the worst of situations, in the most terrible of circumstances, the Lord is near. And just as he gave her to us to live and to know her and to love her and to care with her, he's taken her home and she's safe there. Just know that you don't need to worry. You don't need to worry, but pray for the Lord is at hand. Don't worry, pray for the Lord is near and he hears the prayers of his saints. Christian maturity Christian maturity aligns our thoughts and our practices with the goodness of God. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I love that list, right? It's seemingly like anything outside in the world is the opposite of that, trying to fill our brains with knowledge. But Paul says for the believer, we fill our thoughts with what's good. We fill our thoughts with what's honorable. We fill our thoughts with what's just and what's pure and what's lovely and what's commendable, what's excellence. We fill our thoughts with that so that our thoughts will lead into our practices. As he says in verse 9, think on these things. Excuse me, verse 8, think about these things. And then in verse 9, practice these things. Think about what's good and what's pure and what's right. And those who are mature, think about those things. And then their life will become evidence of what they're thinking about and what they're focusing on. I want to go back here to a verse as I close in verse 7 of chapter 4. A verse that I've quoted many times. Paul says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's hard sometimes maybe to preach that verse, but you understand it. If you're a child of God, you know exactly what he means. We can't explain it sometimes. We don't understand how it comes to us. We don't know why, even in the most difficult of circumstances and things, we're not really sure why we still have peace, other than the fact we know that God is near. And what every single person in this room is longing for is peace. Peace with God. Peace with one another. Peace knowing that everything in life is cared for and watched over by the one who holds everything in his hands. Peace in knowing that our sins have been forgiven and now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's me. Peace in knowing that every single day we live in him, it just keeps getting sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. That's what we long for. And Paul says, Paul says the end of the Christian life that's growing in maturity is peace. And if that's what you want, then first you must trust in Jesus to save you and redeem you from your sins. And second, you must trust in him today and every day from now on, knowing, knowing that there's no other one you can look to. He's the one you need and he's the one you want. And seek after him in every step. Grow in grace and maturity in every way. And that peace you long for, which surpasses anything this world can comprehend or understand, will be yours in Christ Jesus. If you long for that peace today, not only know Jesus, but press on to be mature in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, for it is good to us. And you are gracious in giving it to us. And so God, help us today not to neglect your word, but to hear what you've called us to do, to grow in grace and in peace, Father. 
seeking after maturity. So it's Christ we proclaim. It's Jesus we offer, knowing that Jesus is enough. Even as we heard our students hearing that last week, Jesus is enough. And so, God, I pray that every person here, everyone in this room will know Jesus and be following after him, pressing on to maturity for his name. Let's stand together and sing.